0: Hello friends, welcome to another edition of Tell Us a Good Story. Today we have a special guest, Julie Deal, who's the wife of a former guest of ours, Pastor Keith Deal, who battled a drug addiction to opioids for over eight years. So she tells her side of the story of what it's like to see a loved one battle with an addiction problem. Hope you enjoy this episode of
1: Tell Us a Good Story. The story of my life, I take
0: Stephanie, this is what you
1: have requested. Yes, I did. To have this
0: conversation, this guest on. We're very excited about this. Ladies and gentlemen, today's guest is a woman with many titles. She is a wife, a mother, a CPA, an internal auditor. She also helps pastor an amazing church in Tyrone, Pennsylvania called Community Worship Center and... I would actually put her probably in that saint category as well, since she's married to my good buddy, Pastor Keith Deal. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Tell Us a Good Story, Mrs. Julie Deal.
2: <laughs> Thank you very much.
0: So for listeners who have not l- been listening to our episode, and they're just kind of tuning in mm-hmm. now at this point, after mm-hmm. this conversation, you need to go to episode oh. 12 oh. of the conversation we had with her husband, Pastor Amazing. Keith Deal. So, well... Mm-hmm. We invited him on the podcast, has an amazing story, and we gave him a copy of our book, electronic copy, because we didn't have a a published copy yet. Mm -hmm. He read the book in two days, and he's like, listen, I want you and Stephanie to come to our church and share your story, your testimony of healing and hope to our congregation. So we shared our story, but Pastor Keith shared his story on our podcast here, which is I'll give you the cliff notes version here before his wife goes into her side. But pastor Keith had a 15 year drug addiction. Okay. Mm -hmm. Once he graduated high school, he got into a mess of trouble. He ended up having an eight year addiction to heroin and opioids by the age of 25. He had five DUIs on his record. He had, was it four years in and out of jail? I believe is what Mm -hmm. he said by the age of of 25 Mm -hmm. and was struggling. I mean, as low as can be to the point where mm-hmm. family, friends would not let him in their house. He was because stealing from them. He was going to steal from them. He was mm-hmm. going to break anything possible to get to a wallet, to get to a jewelry, so he could pawn off to get that next fix. Okay. Well, it got to the point where Pastor Keith ended up being completely healed, completely restored, mm-hmm. went to a rehab and mm-hmm. met Jesus, as he said, at Peniel and mm-hmm. encounter with Jesus and was completely restored every addiction every bondage completely broken complete freedom mm-hmm. and so in the process he met his his future wife Julie and I again I am blown away by this story
1: mm-hmm.
0: and how we met how we reconnected right and then mm-hmm. we met Julie here in February as again they were so kind so gracious to allow us to Come to their church and have a conversation. Two services that that Sunday morning at their church in Tyrone, which was amazing. They they made us feel like family. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. on the way home, we I had a conversation with Steph and, and your name came up, Jolie.
1: You know, people hear about the addictions. People hear people are struggling, but also family members are struggling. Family mm-hmm. members are going through this. You know, with these people that are addicted. So I. Pastor Keith's message was so intense and so amazing that people were able to relate to it. And I want mm-hmm. your story to be told because your story is going to be just as incredible because you mm-hmm. were there doing this with him. Not doing it, but...
0: Going through it. Going through it. You are a professional woman. You are a career woman, yes. right? You are a <laughs> CPA. Mm-hmm. You are an mm-hmm. internal auditor You have worked in big four public accounting, mm-hmm. which is the top of the line when it comes from an accounting perspective as a CPA. Mm-hmm. If you work for a big four public accounting firm, that means you are at the top line of your career. That is this mm-hmm. woman right here. Okay. So it's not like um, she's, I don't know. She is a professional woman. Okay. Is, is, mm-hmm. what I'm, is what I'm getting at. So professional people experience the same type of issues, the same yeah. type mm-hmm. of problems that other people do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it does not discriminate. So yeah. Pastor Jolie, can you please walk us through? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you meet Pastor Keith? And I'll, I will shut up yeah. here and let you go.
2: I think um, one of the things I think is sort of helpful to how our story unfolded was um, my brother was a heroin addict. So that was sort of my first encounter with addiction. So my brother, we went through that as a family. My parents reached out and they um, learned about Penile. So my brother went to Penile and went through the program. While he was there at the program, Keith came into the program. Mm-hmm. So Keith kind of came at the end, they sort of formed a friendship. And each year, um, Panao has like a graduation for all their uh, people that graduate the program in that year. So um, it's not like everyone comes in at different times. So your graduation is always in, I think it was in August. So everyone that graduated that August, you know, would come back for the graduation. So We went to my brother's graduation and Keith was still in the program. And of all the families um, there, they put our family and Keith's family together at the same table. So um, nothing happened then. I was not trying to pick up somebody that was in a rehab program (laughs) in any way. I was not interested. Already people were like, oh gosh, I can see why this happened. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, <laughs> um, no, but that was sort of our first introduction to him and his family. Um, my brother was done home now. Um, as Kevin said, I went to Penn State University, majored in accounting and um, did a minor in like business law after school. I started working at the Big Four. So now I'm living in Pittsburgh working for a Big Four f- accounting firm. And when my brother left Penile, he initially was engaged when he went in and he really cut all of his ties. He ended the relationship. He cut off his friends, um, started all new friends. So I sort of became his plus one for anything. If he had like a wedding, we went to all the Penn state home games. Like I would come home on the weekends when I wasn't traveling and we would be together. Um, Through that, then the next year um, in August, he said, would you come back and let's go to Pinal's graduation? And You know, just going through what we had gone through with my brother, it was like Panayao was like a lifesaver to us. So my whole family wanted to go back. Mm -hmm. So we all wanted to go back because we knew this place had really changed our lives, changed our family's life. So I'm like, yeah, let's go back to the graduation. So now this is Keith's graduation. So my brother's there as a graduate. This is Keith's actual graduation. He is now attending Lee University in Tennessee at Bible school, but he drove back with his friend to go to the graduation. After the graduation, my brother said, um, "Just kind of like, hey, Keith, you know, Keith and this other guy, their friend, was going to come back to the house and just sort of hang out." And I'm like, "Oh yeah, that's fine." So they came back to my parents' house. I was there for the weekend, staying, and we just sort of talked, and nothing happened, just like small things. The next day, we go back for the church service for the another part of the graduation. And my brother says, um, like, Keith asked if he could have your phone number. And so before that, I had really only dated a couple people in, like, for longer times. And so I guess I really hadn't dated or understood dating world. And I'm like, well, what's he going to do with it? Like, what's he want to do? <laughs> like, he's not really understanding, like, <laughs> I was like, got a little oblivious. I'm like, oh, it's weird. Like, what's he going to need gonna my phone for? sell it for some life insurance <laughs> yeah, right? and I don't know. real estate transactions.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, like, sell you something. What, I, yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh, it's weird. So my brother doesn't really say anything or do anything. So as we're walking out, I was sort of left with that. As we're walking out to the car, he says to me, hey, I was talking to your brother. I enjoyed talking to you and I want to know if I could have your phone number to call you. Well, then I'm starting to realize like, oh, I, oh he was actually talking to me not like as my brother's Sister, but I was like, you know, something more. So I'm like, oh, I don't know. So I gave him the number. Later that day, he um, in the day just called. I saw him call and knew it was him. And it was like, I didn't answer because I was like too nervous. I was like, oh, what am I going to do? So I didn't, I just let it leave him voicemail. And he basically left a voicemail saying, hey, and, you know, call, give me a call. This is Keith, whatever. So that's sort of how our relationship started, um, it was, you know, us just learning about each other. He was at school. I worked at the big four and we would visit maybe like once a month sort of thing. And he was really like going after God, doing the things for ministry and for school that, you know, he needed to do. So we lived separate for a couple years. And I think he shared that then at one point he moved to Pittsburgh and live with me. Part of that was just sort of a, an escape to get out of where he was in the bad situation. I think, too, we thought in addiction, when you're living in addiction, you're always trying to come up with a plan. Um, Kevin mentioned I'm an auditor. I'm constantly looking at processes, how you can fix things. Um, my relationship with Keith, especially back then, was like the ultimate challenge of how to fix something in a worldly way because I didn't understand everything that was happening. So he moved to Pittsburgh and um, we moved in together and we felt like this was the fresh start that we were wanting like this. Now we're in a new location, you know, away from friends, away from doctors. Um, that's another thing is like you'd have to find new doctors right. here, um, you know, because that's a piece that with addiction, usually hand in hand, is like there's usually part that happens on the street and there's part that happened right in your you know primary care doctor's office that's very overlooked. Mm -hmm. So when Keith first came, he had, he legitimately has disc out in his back that a doctor on an MRI will see and say, Oh, you based on this, you should have pain medication. So that was sort of like the opening of the door. And he found, you know, went to the doctor, they did the MRI. And so for me, I'm like, well, if a doctor thinks that he needs Pain medicine, then he probably does. Like the test shows, you know, and that's kind of another sort of misunderstanding that I had, not realizing like in opening that door, just that little bit um, really swung it wide open in ways that I never would have expected. And so, you know, that's how it started. I would see the pain medicine in the house. He would sort of take it, quote unquote, as he was supposed to, but it's just it's never enough when that addiction, when that appetite gets triggered, it just kind of was like a ball that's rolling that you cannot stop. And so it just kind of escalated and escalated to more pills until then these pills aren't enough. I'm going to buy pills on the street. Mm-hmm. Pills on the street are, are extremely expensive. And even though um, I had a good job and he was working, it's, it's not enough to keep up like with what you need. So you so heroin is just cheaper. It sounds really funny to be like, well, you're doing the more economical thing because you can afford it." Like, "Wow, that's really responsible," you know, saving us Thanks money. For saving us money. Too. Uh, yeah, and it's really exactly. It's it's very delusional because when you get into the thick of where you're into the place where you like find pills or you find drugs, and you are struggling financially, which is also bogus because of the like career that you have dumping things in the toilet and flushing them feels like you're just flushing money right. and you start to be like, well, would this drug dealer take these back? Like would they give you a reimbursement? Like, did, did, what, what, kind, what kind of return program hey, is this? Because if we are not going to use them and I'm just going to flush them every time I find them, like we need to work something out because I'm literally flushing our money.
0: Please tell me you kept the receipt for this, Keith. Yeah. What's the returns policy with that guy that you just got yeah. these from?
2: Yeah. Like what kind of, what kind of business yeah. are these people running? He's like, a
0: standup guy. I'll you know? take it back.
2: Yeah. They're stand-up people. Exactly. <laughs> so we would, you know, have time where Keith was great and it's kind of when I would say he was managing his drug addiction. So it wasn't like he wasn't taking anything. It's just that he was only taking enough to not be sick and to live, you know, function normally. Like if you met Keith, just like now, he was very likable. Like, he never had a problem getting, getting a new job if he lost a job because of, you know, the drug addiction, if something happened. Um, people were drawn to him. Like, you know, we went to church, different places people would reach out to him. Like, they even sensed the call on him, even in our like, very affected state. But we would go through that times where then I could just sense, like, the anxiety building on Keith. So you have to think, like, I'm at a professional office all day. And I started sort of getting this routine of like, I could see who Keith called, I could see who Keith texted. Mm. Any day that I was Keith's first call when he got up in the morning was a good day. If we started to creep on, like I'm at work, you know, now it's like 10, 11, I haven't heard from Keith. If it was during a really bad time, my biggest prayer was like, Keith, I hope Keith's asleep. Because sleep is like a big friend to you during that time. Cause you just want them to wake up and have some clarity and wake up and think, Oh crap, what did I just do? Like, I don't want to live this way. But if I would get on and think, okay, I'm going to just get on and see and I saw that he had been texting and calling. It was like my stomach just dropped because I knew it was like, he was back up. He was like on the move. He was like making arrangements for whatever his plan was for the day meaning to like get pills or get drugs or whatever. And you're just like crippled because every day I'd be like, oh my gosh, like, oh no. So then you immediately want to call and be like, okay, act like you didn't just look at his phone records and realize he's been up. Like act like you just think he hasn't called yet. And we would talk and I would sort of try to be like, what's your plans and just act as normal as possible. But like knowing that like the ball was already moving and like he was already the day was pretty much lost. And I think it's hard when people are trying to like wrap their mind around addiction, you, you sort of get into a very weird place where you're trying to do this, like what you see as like a job or your career. But on the other hand, you are living with someone you don't know if they're going to get arrested or even more seriously, if they would die that very day Right. and living in that constant state of like, will every day, will this be the day they'd be arrested? Or will this be the day they overdose? What if, you know, they overdose and you don't get home? Or, you know what I mean? All these different things or no one's around or, you know, that. And it kind of makes all of the things you do, like for me at work, if I was like looking at processing and, and looking at like, did someone approve a transaction right? It's like, does it even matter? Like, does this really matter? But you also understand you have to do a really good job at your job because it's the lifeline of like your finances, of everything that's like keeping, sort of keeping you going in some ways. And that's sort of the part I don't think people realize when they're in a workplace. After we have like sort of shared our testimony, people will sort of, they never want to just say it out in the outward, but they'll kind of take you over later and say, Oh, you know, would you think that your husband or you would be willing to talk to my son Mm -hmm. or, you know, my nephew or my niece or um, my aunt is struggling with it? You know what I mean? Because there is still, even though you hear people talk about the opioid crisis, uh, they talk about it in a way that there still is a ton of shame that's put on the family members of the people sort of associated with that. It still very much feels like a failure in life if you're going through this. It's not like people are like openly just there to support you. They are in a way, but we sort of talked about this earlier about the boundaries, about setting up where your boundary is. So when Keith and I met, if you would have asked me, I would have had a very clear line between where right was and where wrong was. And I would have felt like I never would have moved that line. But sort of as you go through the relationship, as you're sort of, you just sort of make little compromises as you go along, that makes it harder to see where that line should be. Um, Sort of what, is this okay? Um, You know, like, we would go through periods, and this sounds ridiculous to say, but (laughs) Keith would say, I'm back on heroin. I want to get off heroin, but I'm going to get really sick. And we had gone through several withdrawals, I you know, so I knew that was true. He was going to get really sick. If I can just get um, Percocet, it will help with the withdrawal. We'll taper off the heroin with the pills just to cut the sickness off. And then when I'm done being sick, I'll just be off everything. So you're like, okay, that that sounds like a good sounds plan. Reasonable. Like that seems reasonable. Like he doesn't want to get sick, but he really does want to get off this stuff. And, and you know, I've seen how sick he gets. So I'm, should I just say, yeah? go to the doctor or um <clears throat> yeah, call this, you know, this friend that gets them from the doctor, or whatever, however you come about getting them. And we'll just taper them off. And you start to think things that sound really crazy if you told other people um sort of make sense because everything sort of gets warped into this um everything about what you do is just about keeping them alive. It's not really even anymore about that they're addicted. You don't want them to be addicted. So everything you do is just from the lens of life or death. Mm. And that's why it gets very distorted and why people, I think, don't understand some of the decisions people make because they literally weigh every decision they're going to make. Well, if I do this, would Keith live? Or could this be what, if I do this, this could mean he would just go over the deep end and die. And it's it sounds intense because it really is that intense when you're like living it, you know, day to day.
0: That's a, that's a very good perspective Yeah, it is. because I could totally see Julie where people outside of the equation who have not dealt with anything like this mm-hmm. could publicly shame you, right. Mm-hmm. Of how could you
1: stay with him? How
0: could you say mm-hmm. I'm drawing the line here, but things have crept to where mm-hmm. you're letting, uh, certain decisions being made. You're staying with this guy And from your perspective, Rick, listen, I'm trying to keep him alive here, right? Every decision I make, Mm -hmm. I know, like, I know there's, there was a right and wrong in in my original opinion, but I'm trying to keep someone I love truly alive, Mm -hmm. right? And I could totally see where someone's not going through that would publicly not shame you, but not understand.
2: Yeah. So I would think that a lot of that actually happened once i was pregnant okay so i think when keith was on he shared about during the time that we lived together and it actually was um like a good time i don't know how to explain it was all bad but it was sort of good in the fact that he was managing he was working he actually was had was working out of town and um we were traveling doing different things together just living you know pretty normal life and um, we had gone away for a weekend trip And I was on birth control and I didn't really, I forgot it. And I just thought, Oh, a couple days. It's fine. It doesn't make a difference. All these people tell me how hard it is to get pregnant. So a couple days do, you know? Um, Well, I was a person that got my, everything came on a certain day. I knew exactly when I was getting my period. So I went to work that day, just like normal, you know, took tampons along thought I'm going to get my period today. It's just my normal day. About, around lunchtime, I started to be like, Hmm, that's weird. I haven't. And I start thinking about the weekend. I forgot to take my, my pills with me. And I thought, no, that's impossible. So I text my friend that lives out of a state and she said, Oh, on your way home, just pick up a pregnancy test. You'll take it. <clears throat> It'll just make you feel better. Cause sometimes stress will make you not get your period too. I'm like, that sounds reasonable. Yeah. I'm going to do that. I went and took the first test and they say it takes, I don't know, so many minutes or something, but like I hadn't even really finished uh, peeing and I'm sitting and I just watch, and the two lines.
0: Oh my gosh.
2: And I was like, I can't fully describe, but like it was like that my brain couldn't really process what I was seeing. And so I went to find like the instructions that come with the test and I'm like trying to read and it is in English, but it literally feels like I'm trying to read like a different language. <laughs> like my brain's just like, roll, you know? Um, and I was just like, Oh my gosh. Like, like I'm not, I'm like, this is saying two is positive And, but this, and this is saying two. And like, I'm not like able to like reconcile the two together. I'm like, I think this is saying I'm pregnant. So, um, I called, Keith was at work. I co- tried to call him. He couldn't answer. um, I call both my sister and then my friend. I call my sister first. And um, just as I like get the words, ironically, she was at the grocery store buying tampons. So she had to call me right back. I'm like, oh, that's nice. Like you get to use tampons. I'm never going to get to use them ever again. Um, And so (laughs) I was like, okay. So she called me back. And as soon as I got the words out, I just started sobbing. Because I had this feeling like, Everything in my life, up till this point, I had never felt like something that had happened, even with Keith, like it was unfixable. Um, And I know for some people, like that sounds really bad because they really want to have children um, or, you know, they don't look at children in that way. But in our situation, the last thing that I would have wanted, we, we were not married. Keith was, you know, sober, but struggling through sobriety was to then have a child. Like it just wasn't the last thing I wanted. And I just sobbed. And, you know, she kind of talked to me and she was like, it'll be fine. And she even told me, Congratulations. And I'm like, does she understand what I just said? <laughs> like, what what is happening? So then I called my my other friend who was the one that told me to get the test, which I'm like, thanks a lot. Um <clears throat> so I called her and she said the same thing like, Congratulations, this is so great. And I just felt like no one was understanding what I was saying. And for me, like abortion was not even an option. Like it was, it wasn't like I was weighing choices. Um, like I knew that I was going to, you know, keep um, the child or raise the child or, you know, do what was needed. But in that process, once I was pregnant, it really sort of escalated the people that knew about the addiction um, to put pressure to say, you need to leave Keith. Mm-hmm. Um, it was sort of like this new element that was brought in to say, um, well, the first, the first things were like, you need to get married, um, because you're pregnant. And, and I understand why people say that, but I also don't believe in compounding one bad decision with another bad decision. The other piece, and this really isn't related to the addiction as much, but I mentioned a little bit about the pregnancy is during that time, there were a lot of people around us that wanted to get pregnant and we're not able to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of a different kind of shame of being like, you know, you should be grateful that you're pregnant and not sad. Like you should be happy that you're pregnant. Why are you feeling this way? There's people that want to have kids and can't have kids. And it's just a, a strange way. I think of people putting like their feelings on other people, um, and sort of not letting them process of like, for you, maybe a person that's married and been trying to have kids, yeah, this is an awesome thing if you get pregnant. To a person in a relationship with a heroin addict that's barely knowing if he's going to live day to day, the last thing I want to do is bring in a child into this dysfunction. Because um, I always felt fine and safe myself, but I just I didn't want to bring somebody else into that situation.
0: Julie, can you talk about the hospital situation mm-hmm. when you did deliver your mm-hmm. daughter and Keith saw his daughter for the first time in and the motions and, mm-hmm. and what, what he did to kind of <coughs> deal with that. Can you walk through how that played mm-hmm.
2: out? So, um, days before I'm, you know, I know that the baby's coming at any point or they're going to induce me. He tells me, um, I'm not just on pills anymore. I'm, I relapsed on heroin and basically just very, it was just very sad. He was like on the verge of tears of like, I'm going to be sick. I don't know what to do. Um, I don't know what to do. I know like Isabel's coming. What should we do? And so in normal people's minds, this is where they would inject in the story of like, you walk out, you're nine months pregnant. You walk out and say, you figure this out and you know, this and that. So At the time, he was like, I need to go get something because I don't want to get sick. I just want to make it through the baby being born, and then I'm going to get off everything. So even though I knew that was a total lie, I was like, okay, yeah, that's what you should do. So he leaves, goes to Pittsburgh or wherever he's going, um, comes back, seems fine, because at this point, he's not using drugs to get high, um, he's just maintaining so he's normal normal Keith, like if you met him, you wouldn't think that he was on you know so he could high, function just, so he could function, yeah, so they take me in, they do the c section when um I was only uh, able to stay awake just long enough to um see Isabel like above, they brought her up above the curtain, and then they were gonna have to put me out just because um. Some bleeding and different things. So I remember laying there, um, they show me Isabel and you've met Isabel yes. and she looks like what I thought Isabel was gonna look like, but when Isabel was born she was like tan and had black hair, not like how she looks now with her blonde hair. And I remember being like, What? <laughs> just so confused i was like i know i've been on a lot of medication today but like was that the baby that you just took out of my belly like what's happening and i just remember thinking about her hair and um the whole moment was just not what i thought it was gonna be i don't think so um but then i wake up and by the time i wake up now it's just me in the operating room and the nurses so you know isabel's been taken um keith is gone and i just am like oh no like where is where is Keith like why am I in there like oh the nurse is like hey we're gonna move you we're gonna take you back to your room so they you know and I'm kind of disoriented still from and so they take me back to the room and they say they're gonna bring Isabel in and the whole time like obviously I don't have a cell phone or anything Keith is nowhere to be found and to me I'm like this is not like where is Keith like he is he in the waiting room with the parents? Probably not. Um, and so I start to like, start to recognize what has happened. So they bring Isabel into me and, um, I couldn't feel like all but like my arms basically at that time. And they said, did I want to hold her? And did I want to try to uh, feed her? Because I was going to try to breastfeed and, I really didn't know. I wanted to say no <laughs> because I was like, this is bizarre. I can't feel anything, but yes, I guess we'll try it, you know? So they give her to me and I remember looking at her and um, she did look very different than I expected. But like even just the whole moment was not what I expected for like the first time I had a baby. Like people portray it like you see the pictures, everyone's like all happy. They're crying, you know, they're holding the baby on them and they're, you know, partner or spouse is like over looking over top of them. And, you know, they have people taking pictures everywhere and, you know, and it just, it wasn't like that. It was literally just a room alone with a nurse and me and her. So I understand what has happened. Like as soon as pretty much as I was born, he made the decision that he was going to go. So he comes back and um, the other people like don't, it, it is very bizarre because Now, even now, I recognize, like, when people are on drugs, like, as soon as I'm near them. But a lot of people, if they've not dealt with that, they don't recognize it. So he came back, and no one really said anything or thought anything weird, but I can tell he's not just managing. Now he's, like, completely high. Mm -hmm. Like, he is just totally out. He had just, um, you know, shot up, and I'm just like, oh, my gosh. So I can't move. You have to realize I still can't move (laughs) with my legs from the C-section, so he's in the chair and I'm relying on him to help me with the baby. Cause at this hospital, they leave the baby in with you and I'm just like, Oh dear Lord. Like, what am I going to do? Like I can't even get up to get the baby. If like, you know, try to feed or do these different things. Um, he sort of started getting like agitated about something. And I ended up just saying, why don't you go home and sleep? Because he still was working. So why don't you just leave? So in the middle of the night, um, that first night he just left. And it was just me and the baby, you know, it is about and the nurses just sort of left to figure this out. So I had just, you know, gone through about like 25 hours of labor, had the C-section. And then this is sort of like this new reality that I've just sort of walked into. And, um, it, I think at the moment I sort of made decisions, that I was going to do whatever needed to be done to make this work and function, um, and that I wasn't going to quit, meaning me with Isabel. It was really, like, in the hospital that I sort of was like, I can do this. Um, I never was a person that had babysat a child before. I don't even think I had changed a diaper up until this point. And people had said to me, like, sort of in a questioning yet statement sort of way, how people do that. Like, um, like, do you think you're going to be a good mother? Like, or are, you know, kind of that saying of like, are you going to be a good mother? Like, are you going to know what to do? And I don't know if it was like a weird confidence that God gave me or a delusion or just peace. But I was like, of course, I'm going to know what to do. This is like primal nature. Like no one had these, no one told people before and they raised children and they were fine, you know, but I think it was just, sort of God protecting me to be like for me to have reassurance assurance that he was going to help me figure it out. He came every day um, at different points but he came the last day and when we were getting ready to go home he was going to take you know drive us back to our apartment. Um, the apartment that we had had steps that you had to walk the whole way up to get in so because of the c-section I wasn't allowed to do steps, which I felt like even that was like protection from God. So I decided I was going to take Isabel to my parents' house because I had a bedroom that I could use on their first floor. And then Keith would just visit us there. Or And a lot of people are still like, were you still thinking about being in a relationship with Keith? And I'm like, I, I, it sounds bizarre, but I was because I loved him. I also wanted for Isabel, for her to have – the family that I grew up with. Like I wanted her to have two parents. I had not lost hope. Um, And that's what I think in addiction is really hard is there's times where you're going to have to make really hard decisions. And it doesn't mean that you've lost hope for that person, but it's essential for yourself, for your sanity and for them Um, because enabling people a lot of times can look just the same as helping them. And it gets very hard to sort of see where the difference of, that is. So I still wanted Keith to be sober. I still wanted him to be in our life. I didn't want Isabel to be raised without a dad. Um, So he came the last day to sort of, you know, drive us home and get us settled in. And I remember I was sitting in the um, hospital bed and this this sounds really simple and small, but I remember watching Keith walk over and on the wall they have, um, and I guess Steph would know more, they're like the, bo- the boxes you put the needles in, mm-hmm. like, once they're used, it's, like, locked. And all he did was walk over and put his finger on, like, the lock. Like, he just touched it for a second. And in that moment, it was, like, I guess, like, a montage. Like, you think of – I'm not sure that's the right word, but it was, like, where you see a bunch of scenes from a movie really fast where they, like, show you everything happened. And it was just, like, in that moment, God sort of downloaded and he took me back through – all of these moments through our relationship and showed me different points where I knew the reality of where Keith was, that he really was addicted to heroin the whole time, that he wasn't just dabbling with pills. There really was no sober time. Um, It was just sort of the maintaining. And he just sort of showed me all of that. And it was like someone took blinders off and I understood all the times where I intentionally believed something different. Like I believed a lie just to make my life easier to keep going along that path. And it's sort of in that moment, it just sort of like took all that away. Um, and we got home to my parents' house. Um, and now at this point I was like, felt very much more prepared because I was like, you've, you know, under you understand really what's happening here. Um, we went in and There's sort of an eruption between the family members because Keith's obviously high. My parents obviously have experience with that. Keith's parents, um, he talked a little bit about his dad's addiction, his mom, like what she lived through with him. There's no one there that doesn't recognize what a person on drugs looks like. And um, so there's a big scene. It sort of escalates. Um, Keith storms out, leaves. Um, And this is sort of like the breaking apart So he leaves and goes back sort of to live in Ohio, which he sort of talked about. And this was really where then I made the decision, like, Keith, you cannot be around me or Isabel unless you're sober. You can't be in our life.
0: And what Keith had said was your dad, your parents at this point would not even let him on their property. So if he wants to see Isabel, his newborn child, he was going to have to see her on the road, on the street. Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. literally to hold his daughter, you'd have to take him out, take her out to the road because he was no longer even allowed on your property. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. My parents basically said, you know, he's not allowed here. Um they really wanted me to like cut all ties, but they also weren't like forceful like, you know, the weird thing is you know, I'm like had just turned 26. So I was an adult. I still had my career. So that so that's another thing is like financially, like I could take care of Isabel and I without Keith. That is something that sort of gave, gave me freedom that some people do not have.
1: Um, some yeah, Well, I was gonna say, from a woman's perspective, you're not giving yourself enough credit, Julie, because not only is the love of your life addicted to heroin, not only did you just birth a baby, not only has your parents basically kicked the love of your life out of your life. You know, you just had a, you are hormonal. You're yeah. you're surviving, you know, not surviving, but you're recovering. Sleep from a C-section, yeah. from lack of sleep. Like all of these things are just on you. So you're you're not giving yourself enough credit, listeners, if you've never experienced birth labor. I've gone through it. The next day <laughs> I sobbed because I thought we named our daughter the wrong name and my husband had to talk me out of it. But that was a name. You are going through so much trauma in your life. Like, I honestly don't even know how you were standing through this and being able to take care of your daughter. Like, Julie, this is just phenomenal to me.
2: All of this is happening while he's um, living separately from us, trying to sort of get his life together. Because Isabel really was the catalyst um, that God gave us to sort of project us even though we went we kind of went in different paths it was like the path to get back to where God had always wanted us to go so I you know lived at home with my parents for a little bit he stayed in Ohio and sort of started going through the process of um how to be sober how you know and not really wanting his life and he sort of shared that on the podcast um I remember the morning that Keith called me after he had um, flushed all his drugs, told me about, you know, what happened. And in a strange way, this is what you have wanted to hear the whole time, but you've already heard it like 500 times. So you're just like, yeah, okay. (laughs) I was just like, well, why don't you go do that? And once you're clean and sober, you let me know. Um, Because, To other people, I was very defensive of Keith of, like, well, he's, you know, trying. But between him and I, um, there was nothing held back of, like, what I really wanted to say, how I felt about it. And so I just told him, like, well, this is fine. Maybe you flushed them all now. I mean, like I said, economically, that's probably not a good choice. You don't even have a job. And if you're going to just steal from someone to get more, like, you're just wasting money. Um, But he, at that point, is then when he actually went and to talk about the things that God orchestrated for us is like insane so I'm sort of planning all this and my plan is at that point was then to come back to my parents house um I sort of knew that I needed that boundary because I knew being in Pittsburgh working full-time with a newborn I would let Keith come back to the house and even though now he's doing all the right things um they just needed more time. Uh, one for him not to have that responsibility, which sounds to some people are like, well, it was his responsibility, but I cannot make it any more clear that a spouse, a child, a pet, any a job, not none of those things will be enough to keep people sober. Um, it just is never enough. It people will think you know, they're having trouble in their marriage, not maybe for addiction, let's have a child. It just never fixes the problem because that's not really the problem. Um, And so I just knew for Keith, like even though he loved Isabel and he made those decisions, putting him back into the stress of having to be responsible for that, um, it just wasn't going to help. So I started looking for jobs near where my parents lived. And about probably three weeks, maybe four weeks a month, before I was really going to either have to sign a lease, um, which meant I knew Keith, I would let Keith move back in with us because he didn't really, he wanted to stay where he was. But if you had to pick between living with me and Isabel versus like eight or 10 recovering addicts, like I don't think it's going to be a hard decision to be like, Oh yeah, we'll make it work. You know, we'll go to church, you know, like all the things you tell yourself. Um, God opened up a job for me to come back home and, um, it was really like last minute, right? I literally had the lease ready right, to sign for one year lease to stay on, to stay at that job. I went through the interview process and they called me like a week before, um, and said, you know, I got the job. And so I took the job, moved back home, didn't sign the lease. Um, and it really, I felt like God was like giving us more time, you know, giving Keith more time, giving me more time. Um, and we continued sort of like that. Keith shared a little bit about how he called then. Um, you know, to other people, I never would say, like, Keith's not giving me any money and I have this kit. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. I would never say that. I'd say, oh, well, I don't need the money. I can support her myself, you know, if they brought up money. But when Keith called, he talked about how he called to say, I want to move to Cleveland, uh, Cleveland, Ohio this time, and start this church and start this men's home. And God told me that even though we'll be physically for their part, he's going to knit our hearts closer together. And I'm like, okay, well, like, what are they going to pay you? Or like, how does that work? And he said, Oh, well, um, they said they can't really commit to pay me anything. I'm like come again. Right. <laughs> like, uh, <clears throat> Uh, I don't know how to explain this to you, but you have a child, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. And so I went through all that. And at the end was just sort of like, whatever. Like, I would love to say, I was like, Oh yes, Keith, I trust that you heard from God. But you know, we really weren't at that place. Um, And so I was just like, okay, because during the times when Keith would come to the house and I would sort of walk out um, to let him see Isabel. I remember the one time I walked back in and I was standing in what was my bedroom at the time And I just said to God, you know, I don't know if this is going to get a lot worse or if this is going to get better, but I really need to be okay either way. Mm. And so I just need you to give me peace that I can trust you because I knew I needed to take care of Isabel. And I did not want to be just like this train wreck of emotions or have her affected in any way. Um, even though, you know, she was a baby, I still feel like children are very affected by the emotions that are around them. And so I just asked God to give me peace. And we joke because a lot of people, um, from that comment, like, oh, you seem so at peace. And I told, you know, my mom, I know when I leave, they're talking about me saying she's delusional. She doesn't understand what's happening. (laughs) It's not really peace, you know, but I did, I just had this peace that I just had to trust God and, We had a Sunday school teacher at the church now that Keith is actually the pastor of. And I started coming back to this church because this was my parents' church. And there was not very many people here. I think in the Sunday school class, maybe five people, six people. And he taught a lesson on binding and loosing. And to say that it changed my life um, is like an understatement. He taught about, you know, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and what you've loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I'm sure cause I grew up in church. I'd heard it before, but it just never impacted me the way it did that day. And I went home and just every day, anytime I thought about it, I just started praying. Like I bind addiction away from Keith and I lose freedom. I bind, you know, like anxiety, all the symptoms that lead to addiction. Um, I just prayed that those would be bound away from him. And all of the other things that God wanted for us would be loosed. And during that time, I started to see God really work Mm. in his life and he just started to become more free and build the trust. But it was more about my life too, because I had all of those burdens like attached to me. Like we talked about the hospital of like all the trauma because it, it was traumatic at the time. If you would have asked me, I would have said, Oh, it was just a hard time, but it was like, it was a traumatic Mm -hmm. experience to go through like all of these things at one time. And I needed God to heal my heart of those, because even if Keith was sober, we could have not been a relationship together and functioned if I hadn't been healed from the wounds of that relationship. Because when you talk about bringing things back up, it will be like word vomit. Like, you know you come home and he, I'm tired, and he would have been like, "Well, oh, you didn't you know do the dishes and I would have been like, "You remember that one time you stole my car <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> you know and it's like <laughs> So it comes up in weird times, it's like, um, yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: exactly. Like, it's like, um, and then people we were like, he's like, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm like, yeah, you'll never ask me to do the dishes. you know, that kind of thing. Um, but so it was crucial, you know, that I got, like I talked about all that shame and that sort of that wall of pride. Like I, God had to break that down in, me and the process to do that was probably just as painful as walking through the addiction. But the binding and loosing, realizing that everything up to that point I had done was just in the natural. It was just um, thinking school would fix it, job would fix it. You know, I didn't have a child to have it fixed it, but it just was in a given in my mind of like, you would not act this way if you had a child mm-hmm. like that, just you're going to do the right thing. You're going to put your kid first. Right. Um, but that's just not how it is. I don't really feel like there's a answer to say do this or don't do this um, for people that you know are dealing with this. Like you have a a partner that's um, addicted, or you have a child. Other than to seek God in these moments to say, "What do you want me to do?" and really sticking with that boundary.
0: Julie, the thing that really impressed me, I guess, was. <laughs> you said you came to the point where you're like, okay, I can't enable this anymore. God, mm-hmm. give me the peace. And so what Keith had said was, you'd say, hey, you got to prove yourself. If you ever want to get mm-hmm. married, mm-hmm. you got to prove yourself because you're not marrying a heroin addict, a, a drug mm-hmm. addict. That is not what I'm signing up for. And I think, it. I know Steph and I have talked about this in the past. The thing that really impressed me about the story or one of the many things was you didn't just make the decision of, okay, Keith, let's get married just because maybe you've been pressured or that's probably a normal thing to do once you have a baby. Okay. I'm just going to marry him. But no, no, no. You said, Keith, you got to prove yourself. Mm -hmm. And so he had to prove himself for what was it? Three years until Mm -hmm. you ended up getting married. Right. And he proved himself like, okay, this is my new life. Now I'm no longer a, a drug addict. You, you're going to see the the uh, the best version of Keith Deal, right? And mm-hmm. I and I think a lot of people should do that.
1: Absolutely, they should.
0: That you said, okay, no, I'm valued. You got to yes. prove yourself. I know we're in a bad situation now, but I'm not going to make another bad decision here just because mm-hmm. someone may be pressuring me or this is the normal thing to do. You're like, no, 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 you got to prove yourself.
1: Well, and it's not like I mean, you were you're still in love with this man. But you have a little girl that you need to take care of too. So it's just not you anymore. It's her. So Mm -hmm. again, yes, you love him, but you have to take a standard because you are your daughter's looking up to you. Even if she's three years old, she's still looking up to you, you know. That's incredible. It is.
0: So you you just touched on this just a second ago, Jolie, but I want to be very very specific, right? For Mm -hmm. listeners that are, are hearing your story. Right, who may have a spouse, may have a loved one who's going through something, some type of addiction issue, and they feel like, okay, this is just my permanent situation. What would you say to encourage them that this is not a permanent, their lot in life, right? That there is light on the other side of, of the situation that things can get better. There is hope.
2: Yeah. Well, whenever I was, um, I guess I was 32 then at the time, um, I had my second child. I had um, our son, Abishai, and uh, the process was kind of similar. I had to have a C-section again, except this was scheduled. So we went in and, you know, I got to stay awake. And um, I remember after uh, we got to do family pictures, so they brought Isabel in. And um, I really just was like, wow, like God, he is just amazing because those same two very dysfunctional people that were there almost, you know, I guess it was almost seven years earlier at this point in that other hospital room with him so sick, needing to get on drugs like me, so worried, and just totally missing the whole joy. Now are here together having a second child. This child was prophetically spoken over that we would have a son. Now we're actually seeing him be born. Isabel got to be there. We got to do everything in the hospital that like, we had cherished and wanted, but yet we were the same two people. And I feel like it's just a testament that, you know, God didn't give up on us, even though many people did. When we, if we would have told people that day in the hospital, I'm, you know, don't worry, this is going to be fine. Keith's going to not, not even just Keith's going to be a pastor. Keith will be sober. They literally would have thought we were totally insane. Like my what I really wanted for Keith was just to be sober. I didn't even care if he got a job. Like you don't understand like your standards yeah. get so yeah. low. You're just like, I'll take care of us financially. Like you just stay sober. That's all I want. I don't even care about anything else. You can be a stay at home husband, you know, stay at home parent, whatever. I don't care. It just at that point, And now to see us that he's, you know, not only like a wonderful husband, a wonderful dad, um, but a pastor, it's like, almost feels greedy. Like God, like this is more than we deserve given what we had done to this point. And I think that for people, when you're in the midst of the situation and you're going day to day, even thinking about what next month is going to be like, seems like an eternity for these families, for these people. I think too, on like a more practical standpoint is people need to reach out to people that are going to pray with them. Uh, We talked a little bit about the the judgment and I think it's easy to fall into judgment because I think in general in church, the way that it's portrayed is that people that go to church are good. And so people that have always gone to church and that continue to go to church, when you said about being perfect, I think that one of the biggest things that Satan sort of disguises and sort of really like handicaps people is through their kind of belief in their own goodness. So I'm a good person. So I won't have these bad things happen to me. And that's why then when they see so-and-so, you know, family members struggling through something, they're like, well, what did they do that was bad that made this happen to them? Because this, you know, good people, You know, they just kind of cause and effect. So, you know, why they they were hiding something or, you know, something was going on we didn't know about. And it really gets like, you know, all that spinning in people's minds. Instead of really saying, Jesus is interceding for us. We need to pray and support these people in prayer and really move things in the heavens for these people so that they see change in their life. Get them out of isolation. Get them away from only telling maybe the couple people that don't judge them or the couple people that are just like, I don't know what to say. Um, they just don't want to lose the relationship, you know, cause that's kind of where you get, you just sort of get to those people that are like, I want to support you even though I find your reasoning totally absurd, you know, but they just, that's the only people you can talk to. And even what you tell them is only a part of what you're really dealing with. Um, so I think for people to reach out to either their pastor or not, you know, a friend that really cares about them. It's going to say, no matter what, even if you decide something I don't like, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to support you. I'm going to make sure you're safe um, and do whatever that takes to make sure you're safe.
0: Well, Julie, we really, really appreciate you being open yeah, to having this conversation raw because we know it is tough to kind of rehash yeah, the past. I know when we were writing our book, there were situations that we had gone through and I would be at McDonald's or Tim Hortons and I'd be crying as I'm typing this out because it felt like I was experiencing it again, the mm-hmm. uh, things that we've experienced. So for you to be willing to go through this again, right? To have this conversation, just to help some someone out there who you may, you've you not met, right? Someone listening to this. Mm-hmm. We appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story of freedom, redemption, overcoming this because th- the story is incredible, it right? Is. It ends it, it's a happy story. It ends in such a good state, mm-hmm. right? Because today you're pastors of a thriving church. Mm-hmm. You move back to your hometown. You have two amazing children. Your husband is now living his best life, yeah. right? You see the <laughs> best version of mm-hmm. Keith Deal, who has turned into Pastor Keith Deal. They're
1: building a and dream home. Dreaming
0: a, a gorgeous a dream home. home. There, <laughs> which is amazing. And it's just amazing what God has done. Mm-hmm. So listeners, I would encourage you, anytime you are ever anywhere near Altoona, anywhere new near Tyrone, Pennsylvania, you should stop in and, and say hello to Pastor Julie and Pastor Keith Deal. Mm-hmm. Just say hello because their story is amazing. Absolutely amazing. if you want more information, you go to their Facebook page at CWC Tyrone or their website at CommunityWorshipCenter.org. Yep. Pastor Julie Deal, thank you so much you for so coming much. on and having this conversation. We so appreciate yeah. you.
2: Thank you for having me. It was good. And I think you can see why it's probably hard for my husband and I to get it worded edgewise. With
0: you.
2: <laughs> 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 so I always have to talk over there. I'm like, I have a lot to say, too. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much.
1: Bye, oh, Julie. Bye.
0: Listeners, if you like what you just saw, like what you just heard, please go to iTunes, go to YouTube, and subscribe, rate, review this podcast. That's the only way we'll be able to continue to produce this. Where else can they go, Stephanie?
1: They can go to KevinandSteph.com. That's all I know, though. So, is that it? You crushed it. Yes!
0: Thank you, listeners. The story of my life, I give her love. I spend her love until she's broke.